There is power in understanding the science behind why we feel the way we do. So today, let's talk the neuroscience of anxiety, only here on the People Scientist Podcast. People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 112, where every week I arm us with some scientific information so we can all become a little bit smarter and healthier with every episode. How are you doing? How is your day going? Thank you for inviting me into your day and for allowing me to share some science with you today. Also, thank you for letting me take a couple of weeks off from the podcast for the September long weekend. I enjoyed my time away to recharge and reset. Now, during the last couple weeks when I had some time off, some of you asked me to talk a little bit about my own research. So, very briefly, I have a few projects on the go. Some of the projects I'm working on include understanding nicotine addiction, trying to find new treatments for alcohol use disorder, new treatments for opioid drug addiction, understanding the neurobiology of stress and anxiety, the impact of our hormones on our brain, and how our genetics may play a role in all of this, in mental health and mental well-being. I hope that as many of my studies become published, that I can dedicate full episodes to my own research, and I can't wait for that day to come about. So now that I'm back from the long weekend, I'm raring to go with another episode for all of us. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, we are going to talk about a topic that I personally study, and that is the neuroscience of anxiety. Now, I believe there is power in understanding the reason why we feel the way we do. If we can stop and say, hmm, I know that I'm feeling more anxious right now. And I know that I might be feeling that way because of this and this, and my brain is responding in this way. I feel like that train of thought can help us cope with our emotions and feel like we have power over them, so to speak. And that is my goal for today's episode, and really for this podcast overall, that with a better understanding of our brain and body, that we can feel empowered. So as we always do, How about we start off with some core takeaways? Now let's imagine in front of us a sink or a bathtub. Now imagine that we turn on the tap to our sink or bathtub. We put a plug in the drain because we want to take a bath or we want to wash something in the sink. So we want to fill up the bathtub or the sink. Now oftentimes in a sink or a bathtub, there's a small drain port, like a small hole near the top third of the sink or tub. 
Now that's there to allow any excess water to drain out so the sink or bathtub does not overflow. Well, in the circumstance of anxiety, there is no safety drain port. So when the tap is turned on and left on, the tub or sink is going to overflow. This is similar to what can happen in our brain when we battle with an anxiety disorder. Normally in our brain, there is a break, a drain port, or a process to resolve a stress response that we might have. But instead, in anxiety disorders, that stress signal doesn't stop. It doesn't go away. It just keeps building. It overflows, resulting in chronic anxiety. So, how can we add a drain port? How can we resolve our anxiety? I talk about the potential influence of heat therapy, the ketogenic diet, the influence of caffeine, alcohol, low blood sugar, fear extinction, exposure therapy, and more. So now, let's get into those scientific details. Let's first define fear and anxiety. These two are very connected and similar. Fear is thought to be an emotional response to a specific known danger. Fear tends to be acute or short-lived, while anxiety is thought to be a fear that is more diffuse, unfocused, and more in relation to future circumstances rather than on anything in the present. Now, anxiety, by comparison, tends to be more chronic or long-lasting, whereas I said fear is more acute or short-term. Now, I'd like to also take a moment to distinguish the feeling of anxiety versus anxiety disorders. Now, it is normal for us to have moments of stress and anxiety. Our brains are programmed to learn. Now, for most animals or other species, their brains are largely encoded by their genetics, whereas human beings have more behavior that is learned and relatively is less programmed right from the beginning. So we undergo what we call fear learning our whole life. So we might fear a loud noise, or we might hear a loud scream that represents danger, or we may even feel anxious in circumstances such as if we miss a flight, if we lose our keys, if we miss a deadline, or have a ton of work on our plate. It is normal for us to feel this fear or anxiety in these circumstances. Fear is actually one of the strongest and best understood emotions as it is evoked in response to something potentially dangerous. So it is thought that fear has a purpose to motivate us to avoid it or to fight or in flight, essentially, to ensure our survival, to fight or avoid that potentially dangerous thing. So temporary acute feelings of anxiety or fear are normal. They are there to protect us, to ensure our survival. In contrast, an anxiety disorder like post-traumatic stress disorder or generalized anxiety disorder are a result of when we are unable to cope with our fears or anxieties, when they impact our everyday life, when that stress response does not resolve, or sometimes when the feeling of anxiety doesn't leave us, even though there is no external factor even making us feel anxious, like we feel anxious even though everything is going right in our life at the time or if we fear something that is not perceived as dangerous, that we fear something that's innocuous or neutral. 
Now, generalized anxiety disorder is characterized by chronic, excessive, and uncontrollable worry about a variety of topics. And unfortunately, sadly, this worry can very negatively impact one's life, their sleep quality, their relationships, their work, their responsibilities, their feelings of happiness, their health, and overall their quality of life. So what does generalized anxiety disorder look like? How may we diagnose it? Well, we have a set of criteria for mood disorders called the DSM-5 criteria. So physicians will ask their patients if they have any of these following symptoms. Number one, do they have excessive anxiety and worry, like apprehensive expectations, occurring more days than not for at least six months? Number two, does the individual find it difficult to control their worry? Number three, does their anxiety and worry become associated with three or more of the following six symptoms in the last six months? Restlessness or feeling keyed up or on edge, being easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating or your mind going blank, feeling irritable, having muscle tension, and having sleep disturbances like difficulty falling or staying asleep. Now these disturbances are to be not explained by other mood disorders like panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, OCD, separation anxiety, uh, disordered eating like anorexia nervosa, or schizophrenia, for example. So these other mood disorders need to be ruled out in order for generalized anxiety disorder to be diagnosed. The disturbance in mood is also needing to be not attributable to other physiological effects, for example, such as an addictive drug like cocaine or opioid use, stimulants like caffeine or energy drinks or medication, a side effect of a medication, and they're also going to rule out the influence of medical conditions like hyperthyroidism that may also contribute to levels of anxiety. So those are some questions or criteria that are used to help define or help diagnose generalized anxiety disorder. Now, what causes someone to battle with an anxiety disorder? What is the underlying reason? And I think understanding this part can help us learn what in our daily life might contribute and also with this understanding can give us some solace or peace, like finally having a diagnosis to an ailment, for example. So let's jump into that neuroscience of anxiety. A great review was written by Martins and colleagues in 2009 entitled The Neurobiology of Anxiety Disorders. Now, symptoms of mood and anxiety disorders are thought to result in part from a disruption in the balance of the activity in the emotional centers of our brain. The emotional processing brain structures historically are referred to as the limbic system. This includes the insular cortex and the cingulate cortex, for example. The hippocampus is another limbic system structure, and it has inhibitory control over the hypothalamic stress response system and plays a role in the negative feedback for the stress circuit in our brain, which is called the HPA axis. The hippocampus is an example of that drain port in the sink, that analogy I gave earlier. If we can target the hypothalamus, we might be able to inhibit this stress circuit, and I'll get into that shortly. Another evolutionary ancient limbic brain structure is the amygdala. Processes, the amygdala processes many of our emotions, including fear and how we respond to fear. 
and another brain region involved in anxiety that has been elucidated more recently is the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, or coined the BNST. This brain region has been implicated in chronic stress as well as addiction. For example, a study published by YASA in 2012 evaluated the role of the amygdala and the BNST in individuals living with generalized anxiety disorder. Now, the amygdala is considered to regulate the response to emotional stimuli like phasic fear, while the BNST seems to be involved in chronic regulation of sustained anxiety. The scientists in this study attempted to induce a state of sustained anxiety in humans. They noticed decreased activity in the amygdala of participants with generalized anxiety disorder and increased activity of the brain region, the BNST. So the scientists concluded that in individuals living with anxiety, the amygdala might be engaged early in a stressful or threatening event, but after that disengages to allow the BNST to maintain a continuous anxious state, that this process may be more exaggerated compared to non-anxious individuals. So what did I just say or what does that just mean? Essentially, again, there seems to be an imbalance in how the emotional regions of the brain respond to stressful stimuli in the environment and that these brain regions might stay online. They may not be able to inhibit themselves. And going back to that initial analogy, it's kind of like the sink is overflowing without a drain port, without a safety valve. Now, why it's important to understand the brain regions that are involved in anxiety is because now it gives us a target, a target for a therapy to help us gain control of our anxiety. So I'm going to get into that in this episode. Now, in addition to the activity of each of these brain regions I just mentioned, it is also important to consider the neurotransmitters that provide communication between these brain regions. Now, anxiety disorders are also thought to potentially result from low levels of a neurotransmitter called GABA or and increased levels of the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate in particular brain regions. So let's take a moment to talk about GABA in particular. Now this is a neurotransmitter of the brain that quiets down brain activity. It is thought that there is an imbalance or too low of GABA in individuals battling with mood disorders like generalized anxiety and major depressive disorder. Now, interestingly, drinking alcohol may increase GABA in certain anxiety-related brain regions and thus quiets down these brain regions and reduces feelings of stress or anxiety in the short term. This is why low levels of alcohol can make us feel more relaxed and less stressed. However, it is important to keep in mind that alcohol, particularly high levels of alcohol, are likely to cause a rebound effect in these same brain regions and as a result, may actually perpetuate anxiety. Now, acutely in the short term, when the alcohol clears from our system, those brain regions involved in stress and anxiety that were quieted down with alcohol will now rebound. This is called rebound hyperexcitability. So the activity of these brain regions become higher than normal, making us feel temporarily more anxious the next day after drinking. This is in part what contributes to alcohol use disorder because some may want to continue to drink to continue to quiet down the feelings of anxiety. Now an analogy to help explain this is imagine that we're standing on a trampoline. When we squat down onto the trampoline in preparation to jump, 
our feet are going to go below the level of that trampoline frame, right? This is analogous to our stress levels when we're drinking alcohol, that our stress is going to feel below normal, below our baseline. But then when we spring up from the trampoline and jump up into the air, we are now above the level of the trampoline frame. This is analogous to our anxiety levels the next morning after drinking. Our stress brain region activity the next morning will be above our baseline. So if we are battling with feelings of anxiety, perhaps we can take a look at our alcohol intake and try our best to cut down or eliminate alcohol to see if it helps us feel better in the long term. Now, as an important side note, alcohol withdrawal can be a serious and even life-threatening condition. So if we regularly consume high amounts of alcohol, we need to try to slowly wean ourselves off and under the supervision of a physician, as alcohol withdrawal could potentially lead to life-threatening seizures, for example. Now, intriguingly, another way to potentially raise or normalize GABA in the brain is the ketogenic diet. So this is another example of a drain port in the sink analogy, how we can reduce the overflowing sink. Now, I know you might be thinking, okay, Stephanie, this trendy ketogenic diet, really? Well, let me tell you, if this diet was originally created over 100 years ago to treat children with untreatable epilepsy. Now, epilepsy is hallmarked by seizures. And seizures may be a result of too high levels of glutamate, that excitatory neurotransmitter, and not enough GABA, that quieting down neurotransmitter of the brain. So the ketogenic diet was developed in order to help normalize this balance and was, is, a very effective means by which to increase GABA in the brain and to reduce seizures in these children. As such, lately the ketogenic diet has been hypothesized as a way to increase GABA and improve mood. Now, I talk of a couple of animal studies all the way back in episode three that support this hypothesis. Now, the ketogenic diet is a high-fat diet. It is very, very low in carbohydrates, less than 50 grams of carbohydrates and ideally less than 20 grams of carbohydrates per day. About 10 to 15% of calories can come from protein and the rest as fat. So it is a strict diet. If wanting to try this diet, it is best to slowly reduce carbohydrates and slowly introduce oneself to the diet to allow the body to adapt to creating glucose from the fat in our body. If our blood glucose drops too much, this can also result in feelings of stress and anxiety. So now let's jump into the concept of low blood sugar. Low blood sugar is another factor that may result from our diet or lifestyle that could induce temporary feelings of anxiety. This can, for example, result in an increase in adrenaline or epinephrine, another acute stress hormone. So that's why I said if you want to try a low-carb diet or the ketogenic diet, to do so slowly to have your body become used to it. Because if we go from eating like a normal, medium, higher carbohydrate diet all the way to a ketogenic diet, this stress response is going to occur. So if we are battling with anxiety, perhaps we can take a glance at our diet. Do we feel more anxious if following intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating? If we go long periods of time without eating? Or perhaps if we eat a lot of carbohydrates, which could result in a spike in our insulin, and then if we try to compensate by eating a low amount of carbohydrates the next day, this could cause a drop in glucose. This could then lead to a stress response in our body. 
Alcohol can also prevent us from making our own glucose in our body, and that's the process of gluconeogenesis. So drinking alcohol while eating a low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diet may drop our blood sugar even more, sending us into an even higher mood of stress. Now let me give an example of something I commonly saw in some of the participants of my clinical trials. Individuals, like sometimes we might fall off of our healthy eating routine and eat a large amount of sugary or or refined carbohydrate foods like french fries, chips, white bread, chocolate ice cream, etc. Then the next day, maybe we would try to compensate by fasting or eating low carbohydrate and drinking only black coffee for a while to try to get back on track. This in itself could result in feelings of stress or anxiety and a spike in epinephrine or adrenaline because of the likely lower blood sugar levels that are going to occur. This could also result in a spike in cortisol, that stress hormone, and feelings of stress. And sometimes my study participants might also go out for a drink with friends and try to maintain their low-calorie, low-carbohydrate diet and order a low-calorie alcoholic beverage. So they might order soda water with vodka, so alcohol with no carbohydrates. Then the next day, they woke up feeling very lethargic and anxious. This is a common combination that can induce spikes in insulin, followed by low blood sugar, rebound hyperexcitability in the stress regions of the brain, and temporary high feelings of anxiety. So if this is something we experience, we can try to balance out our blood sugar by cutting down on refined carbohydrates and sugars and If we do fall off of our healthy eating routine, as it happens, that's okay. The next day we can try to eat healthy, but perhaps not strictly cut carbohydrates and perhaps not fast or follow intermittent fasting right away, as that might be drastic on our blood sugar levels, especially if combined with caffeine and alcohol. Now, what else in our diet might contribute to our anxiety? Stimulants in general are thought to contribute to anxiety. Stimulants like caffeine, yohimbine, and ginseng, which can be present in energy drinks or supplements, coffee, dark chocolate, etc. For example, in the clinical trials, a consistent way that we can actually induce temporary feelings of anxiety is giving higher doses of stimulants like caffeine or yohimbine. In the journal Anxiety in 1994, Nickel recruited 10 subjects and gave them intravenous doses of caffeine, so infused caffeine directly into their blood circulation. The scientists noted consistent increases in anxiety in all, ten per- in all 10 participants and an increase in the blood stress hormone cortisol. As an interesting side note, all subjects had what the scientists called olfactory hallucinations, meaning that the participants could smell things without the scent actually being present after they were infused with caffeine. Like they could smell coffee with no coffee being around. Isn't that a curious phenomenon? Maybe a topic for another day that I can cover for a different episode. So through many studies, we realize that caffeine seems to alter our neuroendocrine system, meaning our levels of hormones like these stress hormones, cortisol, that may influence our overall mood and neurobiology. We also know that caffeine can potentially increase our heart rate, and that may send a signal to our brain of a stressful event. So if we're feeling unusually anxious, let's also take a look at the stimulants that might be in our diet and our supplements and our drinks and our food. 
Perhaps we can cut down on those and see if that makes us feel better. How else might we arm ourselves against our feelings of anxiety? Well, if we can understand the role of our genetics, that also could give us another set of tools or another target. Now, we all have certain differences or SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms in specific genes. And association studies have realized that certain SNPs in specific genes are related to a diagnosis of anxiety disorders. Now, these genes include adenosine 2A receptor, cholecystokinin receptor B, 5-HT2A receptor, which is a serotonin receptor, as well as monoamine oxidase A. In particular, what caught my eye was that 5-HT2A serotonin receptor. Now, serotonin is a very important molecule in our brain that helps stabilize our mood. And how might we help our serotonin levels? Well, the substrate to serotonin is the amino acid tryptophan. So if someone has low serotonin, one way to potentially increase serotonin in the brain is by increasing tryptophan uptake by the brain. Now, I went into great detail about this in episode 83. But briefly, brain serotonin receptors are widely distributed throughout our central nervous system, and they regulate a lot of things like our mood, our sleep, and our appetite. If we have reduced serotonin functioning, this is seen as a vulnerability factor involved in mood disorders like anxiety and depression. Whereas increases in brain serotonin are found to improve mood and to reduce mood disturbances. Since the production of serotonin is limited, by the availability of the amino acid tryptophan. We have looked at tryptophan in clinical trials as a way to potentially improve serotonin and mood. Serotonin in the brain is synthesized from that amino acid tryptophan. And interestingly, in episode 83, I talk of clinical trials where scientists depleted the amino acid tryptophan from the diet of people, which led to an increase in feelings of anxiety and depression. So if we believe that our anxiety may be, may be related to our genetics, like if many members of our family live with anxiety, perhaps there's some alteration in how the proteins are expressed in the brain that are involved with neurotransmitters like serotonin. So yes, it is possible that we may just be predisposed to feeling more anxious because of our genetics. But we like to say as scientists that our genetics are not our destiny, that the choices we make in our lifestyle are more important. So if we believe that we might have low serotonin, what can we do to help increase that? Well, since serotonin is made from that amino acid tryptophan in our body, let's try to increase tryptophan. We need to think of tryptophan as being like a brick in a brick wall, as it is the building block of protein. So a lot of sources of protein are also going to contain tryptophan. Now we can increase our brain tryptophan by consuming even pure tryptophan in supplements. We can also increase tryptophan uptake by, in, by increasing our consumption of carbohydrates, interestingly. Serotonin uptake can also be increased with tryptophan-rich alpha-lactalbumin proteins, which is a whey-derived protein that contains a higher tryptophan content than most food protein sources. There are also protein supplements that contain hydrolyzed proteins with a high amount of tryptophan content as well. So that interests you, you can go back to episode 83 to hear more about that. 
Marcus and colleagues, for example, in 2008 in the journal Psychopharmacology, conducted a double-blind randomized crossover study. The plasma amino acids in mood were repeatedly measured in 18 subjects before and after intake of various sources of tryptophan containing 0.8 grams of tryptophan. Now, the participants were asked to consume the placebo, or source of tryptophan, and blood was collected and their mood was assessed using the profile of mood state questionnaire. That was done at various time points up to 210 minutes after consuming the supplement or placebo. The scientists noticed that the hydrolyzed protein that contained 0.8 grams of tryptophan increased blood levels of tryptophan and improved measures of mood the most and the longest lasting. So increasing sources of tryptophan may be able to help increase serotonin, might be able to help improve mood. Now, how about another drain port safety valve example? How else can we potentially normalize our neurobiology to lower our anxiety? Well, in episode 55, I go into the details of how heat may be a good therapy to improve mood, induce relaxation, and reduce negative mood. In 2017, in the journal Psychoneuroendocrinology, the scientists conclude that in depression and anxiety, the hypothalamus, which is part of the limbic system of our brain, may be more active than normal. Specifically, the signal the hypothalamus gives to the pituitary adrenal axis, that stress circuit, may be overactive. The circuit of the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis is generalized as the stress anxiety circuit. So this is a big target in generalized anxiety disorder. Too much activity of this stress circuit can lead us to feeling anxious and having chronic stress. So this is thought to be one underlying reason for mood disorders. So we know that the hypothalamus responds to temperature by looking at fMRI scans. Now fMRI will measure the blood flow in the brain as a way to see the brain signal or which brain regions are being recruited. So in this particular clinical trial, scientists looked to see how the brain region signal of the hypothalamus changed under different temperatures. For example, in a couple of clinical trials, the scientists applied heat to the participants' hands of up to 46 degrees Celsius. The scientists noted that certain brain regions responded. For example, there was a decrease in the blood flow to the hypothalamus in the brain. So the idea of sauna use, a warm bath, a warm shower, these may be ways to help us reduce the activity of the stress circuit in our brain by acting on the hypothalamus in order to help balance out or inhibit this overflowing stress signal. How about another uh, port in the sink? McNally in the journal Clinical Psychology Review in 2007 wrote of exposure therapy as an incredibly promising and powerful way to help individuals battling with different anxiety disorders. Now, exposure therapy was first reported by Wolpe back in 1958, where he trained cats to be afraid of things and was able to untrain that fear. This is called fear extinction. It is essentially relearning the environment or relearning the things that cause us anxiety or stress, reconditioning ourselves, so to speak. So, for example, if deep water is something that causes one anxiety, exposure therapy could include placing that individual in deep water, but in a safe, positive environment, like in a life jacket with someone that they trust. Over time, the brain will condition and relearn that this stimulus, this environment, the water, is not as fearful as originally thought. 
Several clinical trials have also used virtual reality to safely stimulate environments, start to safely simulate environments that may have previously induced anxiety in order to desensitize the individual to the fearful situation. However, it is important to note that exposure therapy and individuals with high anxiety or PTSD need to proceed with caution and under the guidance of an expert, as it is possible that being exposed to the stimulus that induces fear or anxiety may cause distress and potentially could uncover forgotten negative memories. So exposure therapy could be very powerful and effective, but should be done with the help of an expert. So that is a wrap, my people, scientist army, the neuroscience of anxiety. If by chance you want to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the episode, then my Patreon and Venmo information is in the description box to this episode. So in summary, I believe that understanding the science behind why we feel the way we do can be very powerful because it gives us an understanding of ourselves and it also gives us a target. Understanding that chronic anxiety or stress is like a sink overflowing without a safety drain port. Temporary fear or anxiety is normal, but if our brain is unable to turn off that stress response, it can lead to chronic anxiety disorders. Now, how, how might we add that drain port? How might we prevent the tub from overflowing? How might we reduce our risk or severity of anxiety disorders? Well, we may be able to normalize our blood sugar levels by eating balanced meals and avoiding high sugar foods because low blood sugar can send a stress signal to our brain and make us feel anxious. We can reduce alcohol intake because alcohol can cause rebound hyperexcitability of our stress brain regions. We can reduce stimulant intake like caffeine, yohimbine, and ginseng, as these may also send stress signals to our brain. Perhaps we can normalize and increase the level of GABA, that quieting down neurotransmitter in our brain, by following a ketogenic diet, which is a high-fat, very low-carbohydrate, moderate-protein diet. We might be able to use heat as a therapy, like using the sauna, a hot bath, or a hot shower, in order to help change the activity of the hypothalamus and therefore change the activity of the stress circuit in our brain. And perhaps another option is exposure therapy to help desensitize us to certain things in our environment that originally would cause us fear or anxiety. So I hope that this episode was useful and informative for all of us. If you want to see some of the papers that I cite in each episode, then you can make sure to follow me on social media where I post the abstracts to some of the main papers that I cite in each episode. I use Instagram the most if you by chance have the choice of social media platforms. I hope that you all have an awesome week, and I look forward to meeting you all back here, the same time and same place next week, on the People Scientist Podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.